giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytala, and with me today is Jenny Barcelos, the co-founder and CEO of Marvelous, the world's most beautiful all-in-one teaching platform. Jenny, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Chad. I'm excited to be here and excited for our conversation. So I'm really excited to dig into more about Marvelous as well. So why don't we start there? What makes Marvelous different than other teaching platforms that are out there? Marvelous is different in that we prioritize design, I would say, more than any other competitive platform. And we also prioritize live events in a way that I think is is pretty unique. So we started in the wellness space. We primarily are serving wellness creators, although all kinds of other creators use our tool as well. So we specifically built Marvelous with the goal of serving their unique needs, which involve a lot of teaching live classes and um, having a really great community space where students and clients can build relationships with each other. And then because our audience has a particular design aesthetic and is non-technical, we've created the, the tool in a way that makes it really easy to make something look beautiful very quickly and simply. So what caused you to differentiate yourself based on design? I think just personal preference and aesthetic, to be honest. As we were building the platform, I realized very quickly that people were choosing us. For one one of the big reasons people were choosing us was because of the simple nature of the user interface and because of the design that it produced. And so we decided really early to prioritize that. And I would say it's also just I care deeply about design and I don't like the idea of using tools that make that an afterthought. And so I thought if I'm going to use it, and I do, I mean, we definitely dog food our own platform and teach our own courses um, and run our own communities there. I want it to look beautiful. (laughs) I want it to be a place that people enjoy spending time. We all spend more time, I think, than we want looking at screens. And so when you are going to engage you know, in that practice and engage with other people on the internet, I think it's really nice to do it in a space that feels welcoming and gentle and beautiful. Yeah. So you have a co-founder, Sandy. Are either of you designers or have a background in design? Nope, not at all. Although I did, I did, I was one course away from minoring in art history in school. (laughs) Um, No, I'm a lawyer. So I'm the opposite of a designer. Although I think there's a part of me that thinks of myself as an artist. Yeah. I I sort of wish that were my identity. Yeah. So given the importance of design that you discovered, how did you go about executing on that? Hiring really great people, I would say, and having a really critical eye. And so there's a tremendous amount of feedback that goes into our process. Um, And now we have sort of a head of brand in our company and she can hold space for that design across both marketing and within product. So that hire, I think, has been critical for us to be able to maintain that as as a priority. Where were you in sort of the product life cycle and, and business stage where you were able to hire uh, really great people? I would say within the last two years. So we are one of these startups that was in the right place at the right time when COVID hit. So luckily, uh, and unluckily, maybe we grew really fast in the wake of the pandemic, the beginning of the pandemic. And so that positioned us to 
higher pretty rapidly over the last two years. And that's when we really had the resources and the capacity to bring in that level of talent. Although rather than, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll say our um, creative director was working with us for many years before that, but just in a part-time capacity. So, you know, running her own agency and we were hiring her out as we could because we were bootstrapped. And so it wasn't until, you know, we reached a certain level of growth where we could bring her on as a permanent fixture in the company. Yeah, that's often a way that I hear from founders to help get things off the grounds, particularly if you know of someone and would love to work with them and you know what they can produce, but you just can't afford to bring them on full time as a member of the team at that point, contracting with them, working with them part time can be a great way to to get that started. Yeah. So let's rewind even further and and Tell me about the fateful day where you and Sandy first met each other. Yeah. So we first met in Colorado Springs at an entrepreneurship event. And it was for an online program we had both been in that was teaching us how to start a SaaS company. And we were two of the only people that had actually sort of done it and gotten to paying customers within six months, which was a pretty audacious goal, I would say, for, to go from sort of being non-technical and, and having no experience in, in the startup world to having you know a product or at least an MVP with paying customers within six months and no funding. So we were two of maybe five or six people out of 550 in the program who, who did that. So we automatically kind of gravitated towards each other. And um, we were two of the only women also in the program. <laughs> so we met at that event and got to know each other over the course of a number of days and sort of retreated together. And then we just started really being accountability partners to one another as we were each building our own companies independently. And then that went on for another year, year, year and a half before Sandy joined my company. Okay. So you were already working on Marvelous? Yeah. Yes. It was, it had a different name at the time, but yes, I was, I was six months into it when I met her. Yeah. How did you convince her to do that? We were actually growing for like a, a solo founder. We were growing to the point that I couldn't manage the company really on my own anymore. And so I applied to an accelerator just because I, I felt like, you know, I had other experience and, and other kinds of career experience, but had, again, zero background in tech startups. And so I, I came from teaching at a law school and, and building and scaling a nonprofit. And I, my background was in politics prior to that. So I had no idea what I was doing. Like, I didn't know what I didn't know. And so that thought scared me. And I just wanted to go sort of immerse myself in an environment where I could ask a lot of questions and have access to resources and mentorship. So anyway, I applied to an accelerator and got accepted contingent on having a team and having co-founders. And I was like, (laughs) well, that's like why I need to come here because I don't know how to do that, right? Like, I don't know how I would do that. And so I reached out to Sandy because, I mean, she had been more closely involved in the company than anyone else because we were constantly working together online and going on Zoom and just sort of like helping each other build our companies, she knew more than anyone else really what was involved. And she was always sort of commenting how she wished she had started a company like this because it, it's mm-hmm. just in the sector. She was Her background is in clinical wellness and, and Marvelous really was serving yoga and wellness teachers. And so I said, well, why don't you come on board? I need to have, a, I need to have at least one co-founder. Well, I, I was told I needed to have two, but I convinced them actually to accept me into the program with just one. So Sandy and I went into the accelerator together. 
I feel like that's a great sign that you were able to convince them to to bend the rule. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's that's actually sort of like my MO in life. So I also applied and got into graduate school at Yale without taking the GRE. So I have like a history of these kinds <laughs> of convincing arguments, I guess. And I'm a lawyer, right? So so I was made for this. <laughs> Yes. You sound like a very enjoyable person though. So I, I find it hard to believe that you're, no, I'm kidding. Yeah. Um, well, I'm like, I'm a human rights lawyer. So the only person I've ever represented in, in court was, you know, like a pod of killer whales. So I'm, I'm like a human rights and environmental attorney. So I'm not like a corporate attorney by any means. So some people might describe, you know, going after things, bending the rules as ambition. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was reading some of the things that you've written, and so I'm not pulling this out, out of out of thin air, but I know that you talked before about how sometimes ambition, particularly from female identifying people, can be seen as a problem. Mm-hmm. Why is that? I mean, the short answer to that is the patriarchy, yes. of which we're all a part, both, you know, men and women and non-binary people are all impacted greatly by the patriarchy. Yeah. I mean, I think it's how, it's how girls are socialized. So that's a whole, I think a whole other podcast conversation to have, but I mean, just even recently I have a young daughter and she was told not to raise her hand as much in school um, because she was so eager, (laughs) raises her hand for every question that's asked. And, you know, like that's unacceptable to me, but I was also told those things. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, just men and women are judged very differently in our culture. And and that's just a fact of life. I mean, just look at sort of, I mean, this is maybe opening up a can of worms, but if you just look at the way the Elizabeth Holmes trial played out versus so many other startup stories, and yes, there are differences, but it's really common in our culture to villainize female ambition and to look at it as problematic. Yeah. You're absolutely right that this is like a whole podcast topic in and of itself, but I think it's an important one. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm curious, it can feel angering and and powerless when something like that happens at school or in a system where it's very hard to control it or change it. But when it comes to your own company, you are in charge. (laughs) Yeah. So what have you done to try to make this different at Marvelous? Well, yeah, I mean, I would say elevating women to leadership positions to the extent that we've been able. I mean, we're definitely a female run company. You know, we make decisions also just even the way we provide benefits and salaries. Just it's in my mind done from a more holistic standpoint than I would say a, a lot of other s- small startups are doing. We prioritize people and and their families and try to treat people like h- human beings versus mm-hmm. just kind of pawns in our scheme to build a company. I would say it's not perfect, but. I really think that so much of what goes on around like kind of like the women in tech stories, like so much of that in the women in fundraising stories has to do with women or non-binary people really having to prove themselves kind of to a degree that is unrealistic in order to have the same treatment or the same opportunities as white men. Right. So we we're obviously like very acutely aware of that and so in our own company we're still very small but always trying to elevate the opportunities that women and people of color have in our company yeah and as you said this permeates it's systemic right and so what might you do when you have a male manager with the best of intentions in a female led company 
I'm of the opinion that it's not enough to just assume that, oh, well, in that environment, this stuff won't happen because it is so ingrained. So other other things that we can do as founders, as people and leaders as a company to create an environment where it's better for everybody? Yeah, I mean, I don't I definitely ha- don't have all the answers for this, but I would say we we've put a lot of attention into coming up with core values that we really kind of strongly affirm and reaffirm in the company um, and make sure that everyone's aware of those. I also just I'm constantly watching what's going on and sort of noticing subtle cues um, when people start to pull back from contributing or some voices are much louder than others. Um, just trying to notice that and not wait for something to be brought to my attention. I think so much of it is also the culture. And it's it's hard in a situation like ours where we're a fully remote team kind of with people across the world all with their own different, you know, they're bringing their own cultures and their mm-hmm. own values to the company. I mean, it's definitely hard. It's harder than I ever would have expected to sort of get people on the same page and and. I don't know. I, I don't have. I don't have really good advice other than to say, like, the founders should really agree on the core values, and then mm-hmm. those core values should be shared sort of constantly. And I think it starts with like the founder or the co-founder and the leadership team um, holding everyone to those values and standards. Yeah. So, as someone who, like you said earlier, you're you're not a software developer. You're not a designer yet you were working on this idea and bringing it out into the world. How did you manage to do that? What were the, what was the very earliest steps look like for you? Yeah. So I started the company when I was essentially on maternity leave. (laughs) I naively thought that that would be like a fun little hobby project for me to start a tech (laughs) company, partly because I was spinning off um, what had really been a research project that was funded and incubated at a major university. I was spinning that off into a nonprofit with with another co-founder, another lawyer. And I spent a, a great deal of time and energy fundraising and was constantly going and, you know, having meetings or drinks or dinner with people or like even flying out to different foundations and and meeting with donors. And I was like, this is for me who I have a body of work and and have developed expertise as like a, a climate change expert. And that word is problematic. But, you know, someone who knows quite a lot about climate change in the law edited like one of the major textbooks in the area, taught some of the first curriculum on energy and the environment. I was constantly having to just go out and raise money all the time. And I, and, and mostly from people who'd cash out of tech companies. So I was in Seattle at the time, you know, Microsoft and Amazon, there's a lot of people with significant wealth. And that's, those are the people that are donating organizations. And so I just thought, I'm as smart and capable as these people. (laughs) Like, why don't I have a revenue source that helps to fund the work that I want to do in the world, which was a lot of um, human rights law and environmental law that's really underfunded, really at that intersection of, of climate change and human rights. And so I just, I thought, well, I'm on maternity leave. I'm really interested in the wellness industry. I see it really being broken. I had gone through yoga teacher training, like right at the tail end of law school, just for my own mental health. And well-being. And I just saw all of these friends and colleagues of mine struggling. And I just thought something wasn't quite right. So the first thing I did was I decided I'm going to try to build something to help them. 
And I set out to interview 75 yoga studio owners or managers in North America and did some research on the biggest markets at the time. Why 75? Because I just thought that was a that was a good number. If I talked to uh-huh. 75 people, I'd, I'd be able to have some good information. And I, I'll say I had just come off of um, a couple of major projects where I was whole, I put together a big international conference um, in my field in, in climate justice. And I had also put together sort of a retreat of leaders in, in the field of scenario planning around that. So I had really learned a lot and elevated my, pre- my, real, cur- my real career at the time by reaching out to people who I thought were thought leaders and experts in in the field across different disciplines and having really honest, frank conversations um, and interviews with them. And I had been able to essentially tease out an entire field of work Mm -hmm. for myself from doing that. So I brought sort of my research and academic skills to bear, which was like, if I talk to enough people, I'm going to start to, you know, find some patterns. So, and I was curious, like I was really, I like couldn't quite understand this wellness industry has been growing for over a decade at that point. It was this massive industry and yet no one I knew who worked in the industry made any money. And I thought that was really weird. And I, yeah. I'm like, why is all the money going to apparel companies or like a couple of big brands? Like something is really broken in this model. I don't think the technology, like tech hadn't really arrived to wellness at that point. Like I came up with the idea to start doing this at the end of 2013. And so it was a long time ago. So I was just like, I'm going to talk to as many people as I can who are running, you know, businesses in the in the sort of major metropolitan areas that are big yoga centers and just see what I can figure out. And so that's what really started it. And then the idea for what was then called Namastream and is now called Marvelous came from those conversations. And it wasn't long, it was maybe six weeks in that I into the research that I I really started to like, there were three or four ideas that I I thought, well, here are product ideas that could really make a difference. And so what I did is I sent out about 200 cold emails and I had 74 interviews from that. And then I agreed to create a report, like a white paper, because again, this is what I knew how to do as an mm-hmm. academic is, is like, I'm going to do a bunch of interviews and then I'm going to write a report about it and I'm going to share it with people. So I agreed to share the research with everyone who agreed to an interview. And so I think that's part of why they agreed to talk to me. So yeah, so that's where the idea came from. And then again, I had no background in tech. I watched some trainings on how to, how UX, <laughs> like how to do UX design, I think like YouTube mm-hmm. videos and stuff. And then I just did it and I made like the first prototype, like a clickable prototype in Keynote because I knew how to use Keynote. Yeah, that's so great. Like <laughs> talking to people using whatever tool you're comfortable with, Keynote, PowerPoint, that kind of thing to do clickable prototypes. Like that's the exact kind of thing I encourage. We encourage at ThoughtBot early stage founders to do. Um, So you were spot on. I don't know if you realized it at the time, but that's really great. What problem did those 74 or some strong subset of them have that streaming uh, help them? It was really interesting because there were a couple of studios. There were two studios at the time in Southern California that um, were doing this. And, you know, kind of the bigger studios in these other major cities knew that. And so because there were so few, they were very well known way back. I mean, Mm -hmm. most of those conversations were in 2014 that I was having. Some of those studios, I mean, one of them is still a major company now. You know, most studios had like 2,000 members, like a, like a, a studio that I would interview, like, 
2,000 customers on their list, like possible customers. Some of those were people who had drop-ins or punch cards or whatever. And then the studios that were streaming had like 30,000 customers. And so that was starting to be known. And people had no idea how to do any of that themselves. And so the problem that was solving was like when I would interview studios in the Boston area, because that was one of the metropolitan areas I targeted, you know, there were certain days out of the year that for, for snow closures, like the studio would just lose all their revenue that day. In the South, there were studios that were impacted by hurricanes that were trying to figure out like, and and I'm a climate change lawyer, right? So I see this trend. I was looking at it sort of from a disaster response, like scenario planning lens, which was, this is only going to get worse. Like I had no idea Little about the pand- you know. pandemic, right? right. Like, but I, I just thought like, wow, okay, there the hurricanes are increasing in severity and duration. Like that's not going to change. Sea level rise is happening. Storms are becoming more unpredictable. Like places that are cold are going to get colder and have more snow on average. So all these c- people were that were complaining about lost revenue for these sort of cataclysmic weather events, I just saw that as being a huge opportunity for for a solution. So that was one reason why this particular idea really stood out to me. Um, And then also just knowing that this actually goes back again to my own story. I was one of the first people, I used to work for Al Gore. I was um, one of the people that led his environmental outreach on his presidential campaign when I was a teenager. And then I ended up being one of the first people trained to give um, the climate presentation um, that he made famous in an inconvenient truth. And so I had been developing presentation materials in my legal and academic career that I was sharing with that organization. And I had to like figure out how to record myself and then try to get it on a, on like a mm-hmm. thumb drive and then send it to Nashville so that they could watch it and learn how to present the slides I was making. And so I actually had like this very different use case where I was like, it was really hard. I was um, on the board of another nonprofit that was bringing together environmental leaders once a year to learn new training materials and then go back out across the world to disseminate them. Again, the same thing. I was like, there is going to be such a need for this kind of tool, some kind of streaming tool that's accessible by whoever wants to use it to be able to share knowledge and information. So it both as a business tool, but it also kind of scratched this other itch that I had seen um, in my previous career, or like the career I was, I thought I was taking a short break from. And so I just was like, this is the future. And I had moved during this time across the country for my husband's job and had a new baby and I missed my own yoga teacher. And so I thought like, wow, I'm in North Carolina in this small town and I really miss the Seattle community and I miss my teachers there. I wish I could take these classes. So for all of those reasons, I saw this as being a trend that wasn't going away and that was only, you know, going to be more in need and more. And and it was really early adopters at that point, like definitely not 74 studios telling me they needed this, but it was a, Mm -hmm. it was a big enough chunk of early adopters that I thought like, this is when you get to make something new that changes the industry. I wanted to tell you all about something I've been working on quietly for the past year or so, and that's Agency U. Agency U is a membership-based program where I work one-on-one with a small group of agency founders and leaders toward their business goals. We do one-on-one coaching sessions and also monthly group meetings. We start with goal setting, advice, and problem solving based on my experiences over the last 18 years of running ThoughtBot. As we progress as a group, we all get to know each other more, and many of the Agency U members are now working on client projects together and even referring work to each other. 
Whether you're struggling to grow an agency, taking it to the next level and having growing pains, or a solo founder who just needs someone to talk to, in my 18 years of leading and growing ThoughtBot, I've seen and learned from a lot of different situations, and I'd be happy to work with you. Learn more and sign up today at thoughtbot.com slash agencyu. That's A-G-E-N-C-Y, the letter U. So you have the clickable prototype and you feel like this is something here. What was the next step for you? Yeah. So I went back to everyone that had sort of validated that idea and I tried to sell it to them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had people PayPaling me money in order to build it. I said, you know, you can become a founding customer and you'll get access for a year included and with a payment. I think I was charging people I don't know, a couple thousand dollars. I don't even remember. It was a long time ago. Like it was under $2,000. So you can get in now. You'll have a 20% discount on anything we make forever. If you want to participate, you can be in this founding member circle with me. And and as it's getting developed, you can provide feedback and help to shape exactly what it becomes. So I had enough people kind of throw some money into the pot, PayPal me money. I also had no idea how to take money from anyone. It was sort of like (laughs) pre-Stripe being a normal thing. So I just had like random people PayPaling me money and I took the money and I, um, I hired a developer to build a prototype. How did you find that developer? That was hard. So, um, through this entrepreneurship course that I ended up meeting Sandy in, I had, um, there was somebody who was a classmate, sort of like a mentor level classmate who had done the course before, who was an engineer at Microsoft. So I asked him to help me. I reached out and asked him to, and if I hadn't reached out to him, I would have reached out to other mm-hmm. developers that I knew, you know, just like f- people in my extended circle of friends and stuff. So how long did it take from that point to get a product that people could y- actually use for their classes? Like early use, I would say like four months. Mm-hmm. So it was like very, ba- very, very beta. Like it's, it's like humiliating, right? What it was, what it I think that be. that's, it yeah, it should be. So it was, it was like kind of a WordPress plugin. It was like a, it was basically a glorified WordPress plugin. And that took about four months. And so I onboarded our early adopters who had given me the money on pay- the checks, the PayPal money. That was the beginning of the summer that year. And I, I said, you're the only people that are going to have access to it for the first three months. And that was part of the deal. Mm-hmm. So I just, I like really worked kind of around the clock, helping them, like working with my developer to solve any problems that were coming up, making changes. And then in September, about three months later, I just figured out how to run Facebook ads. <laughs> so I just started, I just made it up Facebook ads that ran to a one-on-one demo and let people book one-on-one demos with me through Facebook ads. So in those early days, if you had to do it over again, is there a lesson you learned that you might do it differently? I don't think so, honestly. I I feel like that first year, I feel pretty good about everything that I did. I mean, obviously, it would have been great to have someone like Sandy come in early on, but I mean, I needed to figure some stuff out that that I I didn't need another person around to figure out, I guess. And... Mm -hmm. I guess now in like 2022, we're having this conversation. I wish I had dumped money into Facebook ads to have more demos (laughs) because they were so cheap. (laughs) Right, right. Um, It was so cheap for me to like run ads. It was, you know, the like golden days of 
online advertising, I guess. So I, I was probably paying like 40 cents a lead or something, mm-hmm. <laughs> something nuts. So yeah, that maybe that like, cause I did, I was very much not wanting to put my own money into it. Like once I raised the money to fund the prototype, I think I maybe in that first year put in like seven grand or something. And then I mm-hmm. paid, but by the end of the year I paid myself back. So that's great. I could have, like, I could have maybe put in a little more money and, mm-hmm. I, but I had, didn't know if it was going to work. Like I wasn't right. really willing for the, like, again, I, I wanted something that was very validated and I expected fully to be going back to my career. Like as soon as I got this thing launched, I was like, oh, this is just like a side hustle. This is going to be passive income. I don't like, I did not understand that building a software company was not at all passive. Like, I think I, mm-hmm. I really bought into this idea that like, oh, it's the internet. It'll be passive income. When did it become clear to you that it, that it wasn't? Oh, uh, I I mean, I would say, you know, so I had a moment to go back to work to like, mm-hmm. not my exact same job, but to do work in my field, maybe one month after one or between one month and two months after I launched and started running ads, I turned on like a really incredible job offer. And I think that's when I knew it. I was like, if I take a job, if I go back to work full time and and I have the kind of career that's all encompassing and I sort of, mm-hmm. whatever, I'm going to give 150% to whatever I'm doing. And so I knew that this thing would kind of die, but it was taking off. And so I think I, I knew I, at that point I had to make a choice. And is that when you decided to apply to the accelerator? No, it was like another nine months Mm -hmm. of like growing it on my own before I applied to the accelerator. And it just, it literally, like I just kept doing what I was doing and it was working, but it got, I was doing things that didn't scale. So that was the problem. And so I didn't know, I mean, there's only so many one-on-one demos that the founder can do right before you start to like realize you need to make some changes because I was kind of doing them around the clock. And then at some point I switched to webinars, like I taught myself how to do webinars. Mm -hmm. And so then I was trying to do demos to like multiple people at a time. But also there was like, I didn't know how to, I didn't understand like email marketing. I didn't understand copywriting. Like I was figuring everything out myself as I went and I just, I was burning out. So that's when I decided like, oh, there are, there, not everyone does this. Like I can't grow Microsoft or Amazon by doing this. Like I can't become that company. So obviously like I need to figure out how to scale. So that was when I decided to apply to the accelerator. Why apply to an accelerator as opposed to like start fundraising, for example? Oh my God. Well, so the whole reason I did this was so that I didn't have to go out to drinks with people and ask them for money. (laughs) I mean... Like I was not interested in that at all. And then I, I, I like soon realized that that's what happens when you join in an accelerator is that like you basically just are learning to fundraise, right? But I didn't know that. I knew nothing. And right. so I knew nothing about startups. I knew nothing about anything like this. Like I literally had no idea. So the idea of going and like sending emails to wealthy people to go have a drink with them was, was like actually the last thing I was willing to do. And I, I mean, I don't think any like VC fund would have met with me. I mean, I don't, I didn't even really know what that was. Like I had no idea. Mm -hmm. So it didn't strike me as something that like there was a lot of money that somebody would pour into it. Mm -hmm. Like that honestly wasn't even an option to me in my mind at that time. Yeah. How did the accelerator help you? It helped me bring on a co-founder, which I would say was invaluable. Yeah. And I learned a lot. I mean, I'm a person who's super curious and asks lots of questions. And so there was always somebody I could ask questions 
to, which was great, saved me a lot of time. And I also got to be in a cohort with other founders and see how they were growing their companies. So if you've never been around that stuff before, it's super helpful, I think, to just to learn what other people are doing, like what other models there are and like what other teams look like. And and I also realized like we were one of the only companies that had any revenue. I had no idea like how we compared to anything else. And so when I realized like, oh, we're growing and we're making money and we're profitable and it's like, a, it's really different than what a lot of other people are doing. So I knew that there was something to it also. Like I knew that we were really onto something. And then I also, um, I also say that fast forward a number of years and the sort of our leader, one of the directors of our accelerator, I ended up hiring him to be our chief product officer. So that was also very fortuitous (laughs) and really an amazing story and outcome as well. Did you end up raising money coming out of the accelerator? Nope. Um, We soft circled around and had an opportunity to take an additional tranche from the accelerator. And we walked away from that at the time. And it was a really hard decision, mostly because Sandy is Canadian. I don't know if that was made obvious. And I'm American. And we never envisioned like wanting, like being a, building a remote company still in 2016 was not normal. <laughs> and there was no way we were going to be in the same place. And the um, potential investors we were talking to, one of them in particular was pretty adamant that we needed to be in person and have, a, have an actual office set up. And that was not negotiable for us. And so we had been doing this fine. I mean, we were fine being... Right. We're building a company together and our first developer was in Asia. And then our designer at the time was like in another part of the United States and our, you know, like, so I was like, why would we do that? Why would we spend money and have to buy things like a fax machine and chairs? And like, why would we, why would we do that? That doesn't make any sense. And so that like, that was one kind of red flag for me. And then also in the accelerator, um, I pitched to tons of people because you're, you know, you don't really, you're sort of pitching, but also it's kind of practice. And I don't know how much of that was actual pitching. And really, I don't know how many of those investors were actually considering making investments or they're just, you know, being nice and giving you their time and feedback. But I pitched a ton. And the only people that were, we had soft circled were women. And I had just had some negative experiences with some of the investors that we had pitched to, Mm -hmm. um, which like I, that's also another podcast episode. And I I was really bothered by, in particular, one conversation that I had. It was like a situation where someone said something like really inappropriate to me. And I just absolutely did not want to, you know, do that. <laughs> so that all factored in. Have you ever taken any investment? Yeah. So this year we have uh, because... We have a situation where it makes sense to sort of pour fuel on on our... Mm-hmm. It made sense like from a marketing standpoint to pour some money in. So we've just taken a, a small investment from angels. Um, and we, we may take a little a little more as well. We're, we're, can, we're, we're sort of open-minded, I would say right now about fundraising. Like I have in the last two years taken a lot of meetings. So I've talked to lots of of firms and lots of angels um, and, you know, get emails every day. And so take a number of those meetings. So I've just tried to be really open-minded about it. So yeah, I, I, I would say that I don't have such a negative association as what I had before, but I also would say my company's in a really different position now and fundraising means something else to us. It sounds like you're in a little bit more control yeah. over the situation and 
by working with uh, individual angels, probably you're able to main- maintain that, I would guess. Yeah. And it's like, it's, it's definitely something where I think that there, you know, I see, I see, and I, I don't think it's helpful to be closed off to fundraising because I see that there are, there are absolutely opportunities, especially to, to go into new markets where, you know, being bootstrapped isn't practical um, because of the cost to go into those markets. And, you know, so something that's heavily regulated, for example, it just, it's not a feasible option. So allowing us to have options and, and actually to be able to think through those options is, is important to me. So now that you've done that, you know, what, what's next for Marvelous? What's the next challenge you're ready to tackle? Yeah. I mean, I would say we had this tremendous growth early in the pandemic, which really kind of unearthed not really unearthed. I mean, I knew it was there, but really publicly unearthed a lot of technical debt. Um, and that's just what that's, I think, normal for bootstrapped companies as well, who who are sort of growing slowly and up to a point that they're not anymore. And so we we've spent like a, the solid like 18 months, I would say, um, up until the end of 2021, there was a solid 18 months of really rebuilding the platform from the ground up. And so we've done that. And now we're in growth mode. I would, we're, we're focusing on letting people know that we exist (laughs) because we're, we're still, we're, I think we're quite well known in the, in the wellness industry and in the yoga space in particular, but we're not as well known outside of that in other creator, creator niches. And so it's about brand awareness. It's about really showing up as thought leaders in the space as well. We do a lot of writing and a lot of blogging and podcasting. And in particular, we serve women and non-binary creators in a way that I think no no one else does. And so it's about disseminating the information that we have and the teachings that we have and letting people know we exist and we're a resource for them. Yeah. Well, like you said, you have a strong reputation and you have those roots in the wellness space, but you've expanded beyond that. If someone's out there listening, like what would make them a potential customer or an ideal customer for Marvelous? Yeah. So anyone who's teaching, training, or coaching online is the software is really industry agnostic. Um, and so it's we're just again not as well known yet in those other spaces. But especially someone who's integrating like any sort of cohort-based learning or um like really heavily integrating coaching and live streaming or group programs or one-on-ones into like an online course or a membership, for example, Marvelous is is really second to none with all of that. Because again, live streaming was our live streaming and and sort of the integration of live teaching with on-demand content is our was was what we started with and what we were known for. And so it's not an afterthought the way that I think a, a lot of sort of a lot of online teaching platforms and ed tech companies have like slapped on live streaming <laughs> as like as like, oh now we you can integrate with Zoom or whatever. And for us it's we have an integration with Zoom that's not like anything else. And then we have other WebRTC based live streaming options. And it, everything is very well thought out and makes it really easy for the end user. So for the students and clients to be able to use the tool, which I, which I think our, our audience really cares about that it's easy for their clients. Mm-hmm. I'd be remiss since this is a podcast. If I didn't mention that you and Sandy have a podcast, <laughs> we sure do. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's called the Angie spoke podcast and wh- where can folks find it? And yeah, so 
obviously anywhere that they listen to podcasts, but our website for the podcast is andshe.co. So I would love it if you're interested in conversations about women in tech, female founders, women, money, and power, online business resources and training. And that's mostly what we talk about. We're doing a crypto series right now, sort of like exploring crypto um, and the intersection of kind of women in crypto. So that's going to be coming out shortly as well. Cool. If folks want to try out Marvelous or find out more or get in touch with you, where are all the places that they can do that? Yeah. So our website is heymarvelous.com and we are at heymarvelous on Instagram. That's where we hang out the most. Um, But we're also on TikTok and Pinterest and Facebook and pretty much everywhere else as well. But Instagram, I would say, is the best place. That's great. Jenny, thanks so much for joining me and, and sharing your story and your advice. I'm sure people will really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Chad. I appreciate you having me. And you can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode along with a complete transcript at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Mandy Moore. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.